Greetings to each of you this morning in Jesus' name with the uh, words that Peter wrote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The vital point in all of history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is by that that we can have eternal life. And I think it is by that that the um, story that we want to look at today hinges and works. I invite your attention to Acts chapter 9. I want to look this morning at the conversion of Saul. Now, one thing that I have to clarify, I found myself as I was working on this sermon and writing my notes to, I would, sometimes I'd write Paul and sometimes I'd write Saul, so I'm going to use the term whichever way it just comes to me, I guess. At the point in the story, he is the... Uh, Persecutor Saul, who was converted on the way to Damascus. But later his name was changed to Paul. And we know him as the Apostle Paul. But in the story today, he is in the, the, the former name. We know him by his former name of Saul. So I've been enjoying, I hope you have been, looking at the book of Acts. And um, if we could, as a theme verse, think again about chapter 1, verse 8. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. You have seen something. You have personally experienced it. It has changed your life, and now you go and live it. Live by that. No matter what, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my martus. Some of you will be martyred. Acts 9, verses 1 to 19. And Saul, Yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, and he said Who art thou, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And as seen in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man and how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how great things he will suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received his sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And we are first introduced to this young man by the name of Saul when he was witnessing Stephen's death. Stephen, as you recall, had confronted the Sanhedrin, with the truth, and it made them angry, and they threw him out of the city, and they stoned him with stones so that he died, and it says they laid their clothes. I wondered why they laid their clothes there. I, I don't know. Was it so hot, and they had to work so hard to kill this man that they had to take their clothes off and lay him at the young man named Saul's feet? I don't know, but that's what they did. And it says in the beginning of the next chapter that he was consenting to his death. He approved of it. He found pleasure in it. Now here in our text this morning, Saul was making havoc of the church. <laughs> I don't know what you think of when something makes havoc of something. We use the term a bull in a china shop. That sounds to me like havoc. That's what Paul was doing to the church. He was insulting. He was mistreating the believers or the followers of the way. He says this of himself when he wrote to the Galatians. For you have heard of my conversation in time past of the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above Many of mine equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. 
That's what he says of himself. And he, he, he also calls himself, when he wrote to Timothy, he calls himself injurious. This young man, this Saul, was a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was one that the Pharisees admired. He wrote when he wrote sometime after this, when he wrote to the church at Philippi, he writes this of himself, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, and is touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And he said of himself in his testimony before King Agrippa, he said, after the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So this man, he was living it. If there was something to be done as a Pharisee, Paul or Saul was doing it. If there was something that could be said against him, uh, it was perhaps that he was just overly zealous. He said when in his defense before King Agrippa, he said, I persecuted this way unto the death. Now, Paul had, when he was here before, before, he, before uh, in his testimony before Agrippa, that's in Acts chapter 22, but he, it, I'm, I'm just trying to tell you a little bit about this, this Saul Kind of this Saul fellow. Uh, he says that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Now we read of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Um, you, you recall how that the apostles had been thrown in jail after they were, uh, after they were teaching in the temple and they healed the, the lame man and so on. And there was a real commotion surrounding them, and so they, they threw them in jail. And at that night, um, an angel came and opened the prison doors and released them. And the next morning, the next morning, they didn't take any lessons from that. The next morning, they were out in the temple again. And so the high priest and the Sadducees, the, the Sadducees were the, the priestly class. The Pharisees were a um, perhaps a more traditional class of teachers and not, not priests. The, the Pharisees, I mean, the, the Sadducees were the priestly class. So the high priest and his Sadducees sidekicks, it says they were filled with indignation and, and they threw them in the prison. And so they were arrested again. And they were hauled in before the council and they said, hadn't we commanded you to teach, to not teach in the name of Jesus? And here Peter, Peter utters those immortal words, we ought to obey God rather than men. And many of the councilmen proposed to kill the apostles. And then it says there stood up one of the council, a Pharisee. Maybe there was some political connections here. I don't know. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among the people, and he commanded 
to put the disciples forth a little space, the, the, the apostles forth a little space. So it sounds like he just set them aside a little bit. And he said to the council, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. And he argues a reasoned response. He's, the, the idea is, is, is if this teaching is of men, it will fail. But if this is of God, you can't overthrow it. And you do not want to be found working against God himself. And so this is Gamaliel, this reasoned, uh, well-regarded, probably older Pharisee. And this is the man whom Paul studied under. Now, it's somewhat striking to me that this young radical Saul had studied under the temperate Gamaliel. Now, Paul described himself as he was exceedingly zealous in the tradition of his fathers. So this zealous word is kind of interesting. And there's, there's a man in the Old Testament who was described as zealous. There was one individual in the Old Testament who's described as zealous. And that was Phineas. You remember the story of Phineas? He was the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. And um, well, let, let me read you that text. It's in Numbers 25. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore, say, behold, I give him a covenant of peace and he shall have it and his seat after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and he made atonement for the children of Israel. So you recall the story of how during the children of Israel's journey from the wilderness, the Moabite king Balak wanted Balaam, the soothsayer from the east somewhere, to come. And he wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel, but every time Balaam tried to curse the children of Israel, his words just turned into a blessing. But Balaam wasn't the children of Israel's friend or ally by any means at all. In the words of our Lord to his message at the church of Pergamos, we read a little bit about Balaam and his techniques. Balaam taught Balak. Balak was the king of Moab. Balaam was the soothsayer from the east. Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So, apparently, when Balaam's curses didn't work, he went to Balak and said, if you want to get the children of Israel, this is how you get them. To teach them to eat things offered to idols and to commit fornication. So this is what was going on. There was a severe plague that was running through the camp because of this sin. Now, Phineas was the man who killed with one thrust of his spear this prominent, I think he was a man of Simeon, I forget, this prominent Simeonite. He was a prominent uh, of the children of Israel and his Moabite prostitute that was with him. And they were publicly immoral. And Phineas thrust them both through with one thrust. And for his sake, 
the plague was stopped. And he was blessed and he was promised that the priesthood would be in his lineage because of that. And he was described as zealous. And Paul describes himself in the, those same terms. Zealous. The same terms as this bold grandson of Aaron is described. And now Saul is turning this same kind of zealousness, this same kind of zealotry against the church. And now he's on his way to Damascus, apparently with authority from the high priest. And it seems like, it seems like this is authority that he was seeking and just given perhaps permission to do this. It wasn't that the authorities were looking for someone to do this and so they found Paul to do it. It seemed like Paul wanted to do it and so he looked for authorization. That's how it would read. But he was on his way to Damascus to capture and to bring back to Jerusalem anyone who was the follower, a follower of the way of Jesus. Paul is doing what he thinks needs to be done and he is doing it with vigor and zeal. Later in Paul's life, he's before the council again. I'm curious. I don't think that we know. I'm, I'm wondering if Gamaliel is still a part of it. But he says, he says this. Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Whatever Paul was doing, he says that he had a good conscience how could possibly someone have a good conscience, a good clear conscience, while wreaking havoc in the church and persecuting Jesus? I don't know, but here's something to think about. It's important that we keep a clear conscience. It's really important. But it's perhaps equally important that our conscience is informed by the truth. And this is just about to happen to Saul. So he's nearing Damascus when suddenly this light from heaven forces him to the ground and a voice of an unseen presence asks him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? This light from heaven forces him to the ground. Light, that wonderful illuminating force that even the most able scientist of the day cannot quite comprehend. It, light has the properties of particles. It has the properties of waves. How do you describe light? The wisest and most able scientists today can't comprehend it all. It's such a vivid metaphor of who God is and of God's character. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now I wonder if this experience, this experience of being struck down by light isn't what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's Paul on a mission in his zeal struck to the ground by the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ who is the very essence of God. He is God in the flesh. But after the resurrection, it was a glorified flesh. This is what is, confront, this is, what is uh, confronting Saul as he is on his way to Damascus. Think of that for a minute. Jesus was and is the very image and fullness of God, the essence of God. He is God. He was and is God. He was and is man. And since his resurrection, the flesh that was his has been glorified and able to dwell in God's presence and is at once physical and spiritual. Put that together sometime if you can. The wisest and most knowledgeable theologian can't comprehend all of that. Such an apt metaphor. Light is such an apt metaphor of who God is. The wisest scientist can't describe light. And the wisest theologian can't describe God. So our Lord is speaking to Saul. I should say that the wisest theologian can't describe God comprehensively. All of us can describe God somewhat. But he is speaking to Saul out of this overwhelming light. The first question is, who are you, Lord? It's the first and quite reasonable question to be asked. Here's a revelation of God that he was unfamiliar with. He thought he knew God. God was the God of the law. He was majestic and just, and he was inflicting his righteous wrath on his enemies by Paul's own hand. That's what Saul was sure of. The law was glorious. It was so glorious that the children of Israel had to ask Moses to put a veil over his face when he came down from the mountain from receiving the law. But this light was beyond that. It was there was something different about this. There was more here than just law and condemnation and wrath and death. This, this light somehow showed him who he was. Not just showed him who he was, but there was an invitation here. This light showed him who he was. It showed him the state of his own heart. It showed him his blasphemous and persecuting lifestyle. But this light was transformational. It did not leave him there. So this was something different than he was used to. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord introduces himself as Jesus, the one whom Paul is persecuting. I find that statement rather curious. I am Jesus, verse 5, whom thou persecutest. Saul was persecuting Jesus? I can't really break that down for you, I don't think. But do you see how personally Jesus takes the harassment 
by his enemies of those who follow him. Do you see how closely he feels the sufferings of his people at the hands of those who hate him? And then there's a mild rebuke in Jesus' next words. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now just a side note here. If you are reading out of a um, text other than the King James Version, you'll notice that that passage from um, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks on down through. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Um, that will not be in your text if it's not a King James Version. Paul, when he was before Agrippa, includes that part in the account. And I don't know if it was an insertion or, or what. But anyhow, it actually happened as it was written in the King James because Paul said it later that it did. So this is how I'm going to approach it this time. The, the text I'm not, the text being there, not being there, I'm not too worried about. Um, but the kick against the pricks seems to be a reference to an ox being prodded by the one who's driving it. And of course, when there's a driver behind an ox poking the ox with the pointy end of his ox goat and the ox kicks back, it's, it's going to hurt, right? That's what the idea here is. To kick against the pricks is, it's hurtful to the one who's kicking. Now, while Paul said he has a good conscience, it sounds to me like the Spirit of God had been prodding him, perhaps. And he, to this point, had not only been passively ignoring it, he was resisting it. He was active against it. Paul most certainly knew of Jesus. He knew of his life and his death. And he probably heard of rumors, if you want to say it that way, of his resurrection, but he had denied it. I'm pretty sure. But he was confronted with the evidence, and it was clear enough. There was hundreds of credible testimonies of those who had seen him alive after his death. The scriptures in which Paul was well-educated spoke of Jesus' resurrection. And I wonder if these questions that he might have had, how to reconcile what these hundreds of people testified to what they had seen, how that the scriptures prophesied of Jesus' resurrection, weren't haunting him. I wonder if those weren't the pricks of his conscience. And perhaps his mind went, Along the lines of, I wonder if Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Perhaps he is Israel's Messiah. But to admit that meant that he was wrong. And not just a little wrong, but entirely and critically wrong. He was dead wrong. If he was wrong about Jesus' resurrection, he was completely dead wrong. And so such a thing couldn't be possible, we think, in our human terms I couldn't be dead wrong, but it turns out that he was. And the light from heaven is shining about him. And from his position on the ground, he's driven to the lowest place. 
that he can go and he's confronted by the resurrected Christ. He recognizes him for who he is. And suddenly his life is not as his is not his to control anymore. The confrontation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And suddenly his life is not his to control anymore. Like the frost on the grass when the sun comes up. His self-assurance and his arrogance melts away and there's only one proper response. Lord, what do you want me to do? Henry, I just about got the goosebumps when you picked that song. My Jesus, not my will, but yours, all right? What do you want me to do, was Paul's question. This is the same question that people and the, the, the people and the publicans and the soldiers asked John the Baptist when he was preaching repentance. This is the same question that rose from the hearts of those who heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? This is the same question that the Philippian jailer asked of Paul and Silas after the earthquake released them from their bonds. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the mark of repentance. This question is the mark of genuine humility. It is the mark of one whom God can give grace. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it is right here that Paul left off seeking his own righteousness and submitted himself to God's righteousness. As he later writes to the Roman believers, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they are ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Submitting to the righteousness of God is the death of the old men, of self, of pride. This is identifying with Jesus in his death. But here in Paul's experience, and in many of ours, this giving up of self takes on a deeper dimension yet. I hardly say to mirror surrender to Christ, but it's almost that way. Because this is not a my God and I kind of a thing here. Jesus from heaven tells Paul, arise and go to the city and someone else is going to tell you what you should do. How about that? And he's not done yet. When he rises, he discovers he can't see and has to be led by the hand to the city of Damascus. Here is the zealous Paul, the zealous Saul, who just a few minutes before was on his way to Damascus, fully intending to capture and to return to Jerusalem the followers of the one whom 
the followers of the one who had just confronted him. And now he needs someone to tell him what to do. He needs someone to lead him. Not by rights. Jesus could claim and does claim absolute ownership of him. And he could, I suppose, give him private and detailed instructions for the future. But this direct voice from heaven is not what the Lord has in mind. Someone else is going to tell you what to do. I find this quite striking. Here's the one whom God is calling, and he tells Ananias that Saul is going to be a chosen vessel that he will testify to the Gentiles before kings and to the children of Israel. But Ananias is to go and to tell him what to do. And it also says that, um, oh, this is in, this is in his uh, uh, conversation with Agrippa. He says, and Jesus told him at, that, at, at this point right here that it's going to, t- that, that, I will tell you what great things you will suffer for my sake. All right. Ananias was going to tell him what to do, but Jesus himself was going to tell him what great things he was going to suffer for his sake. And that happened uh, when he went to Jerusalem, just following this passage here. Ananias is to go and to tell him what to do. And Saul will be waiting For three days, sitting blind and eating and drinking nothing, Paul waited for the divine message that was to be spoken by a person who it's likely that Paul would have just been happy to arrest and haul back to Jerusalem just three days previous. And when Ananias finally comes, he says, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, And see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth, for thou shalt be his witness. Thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And as Paul did what he was told, He received his sight. The conversion of Paul may well have been the most consequential individual conversion in the history of the church. Probably was. Thou shalt be his witness unto all men, was Ananias' words. I don't think there's been a greater missionary than Paul the Apostle. And much of what has since what is considered to be Christian doctrine was formulated by him. The great doctrines of our sinfulness, of justification by faith, of Jew and Gentile being one. The purpose of the Old Testament law and how it was to point us to Christ. The doctrines of all, bond or free, male or female, being equal before God. Doctrines of the second coming of Christ have all been given to us by Paul's writings. I'd like to consider just briefly the words again, Lord, 
what wilt thou have me to do? As we sang, my Jesus, as thou wilt. When we are confronted by the truth, even though perhaps we may not even be seeking it, Paul wasn't seeking it, but he was confronted by it. The best and the only thing to say is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now, I don't know if you see a correlation here between faith and life, faith and action or not. Confrontation of the truth. Paul did not ask, what do you want me to believe? That's just part and parcel of this whole thing. A confrontation of the truth. And Paul's question is, what do you want me to do? And these words come from a heart that's vulnerable and open. They come from a position of humility, of brokenness, and of surrender. We all, as believers, have come to the place... And we all, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to maintain ourselves in the place where we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And the question that comes immediately following is, what do you want me to do? Our Lord just may take away the last shred of self-reliance and wreck it. Someone else is going to tell you what to do. For the follower of Jesus... This is not just a once and done kind of a thing. While some things are settled in your minds, the first and overarching confession of Jesus being Lord is always firm and settled. But there is a continual question for the followers of the way. And the answer may come by the voice of the church calling you to serve in some role in the brotherhood. The answer may come by a mission organization asking you to serve. His answer may come by a phrase in a song or maybe by a preacher's sermon. Elijah heard God in a still small voice. Ananias saw a vision. We don't know how the answer is going to come when you ask that question. And we don't know exactly what it's going to be either. It may just be to be kind to your neighbor. His answer may be to show love to someone who isn't showing love to you. What do you you want me to do? And Jesus' answer just might be to forgive your brother or sister. It just might be to submit your preferences to the voice of the brotherhood. It might be to go talk to one who has hated you. It might be to go to some far-flung corner of the earth to minister to the neglected. It might be to confront kings and authorities who'd as soon get rid of you as listen to you. But I think his answer, the answer to your question, when you're confronted by the truth and you ask, what do you want me to do? The answer will always include being a witness of the transforming power of the light of the resurrected and glorified Christ.
the response by those who are living a life of repentance and by those who would follow him, when he tells you what to do, the answer is always, yes, Lord. Let's kneel for prayer.